Day, mate 40 here so what an extraordinary day what an extraordinary time the former president of the united states donald trump indicted on what looks like you know very ticky tack campaign finance violation so we haven't seen the indictment yet so it may indeed be you know a lot more serious than what we were, were expecting but uh you know what, what a crazy crazy time i mean i, I really didn't <laughs> didn't expect this but uh okay let's let's get some commentary here so it's really happening was attorney decline these charges the federal election commission to decline these charges now that alvin bragg got a million dollars from george soros who became his political puppet now they want to bring these charges this is going to make the limousine liberals in manhattan very very happy uh but it's very very bad for our country in terms of Republican response, you're hearing from House Republicans they're going to bring Bragg out to the Capitol and, and they got subpoenas flying. Okay, fine. But what happens the next time a Republican gets in the White House? Are we going yeah. to start prosecuting Democrats the way they prosecute Republicans? Because you hear a lot of so-called classy Republicans say, oh, you know, you know we, can, we can't do this, we can't do that, we're better than that. Well, are we? Where, where do we go from here? I mean, that's the problem. We're crossing the Rubicon here. We have a president of the United States, Joe Biden, who is clearly compromised. He is compromised. We have the bank records, subpoenaed bank records, where Joe Biden, his family has taken a million dollars from the CCP. And they're, they're not going to do anything about this. A, a president who's compromised by China and Ukraine, but they're going to go after a former president and potentially a future president because he settled a nuisance claim with Stormy Daniels back in 2016. Somehow this is a federal felony under under our campaign finance laws. This is who are they, who's Alvin Bragg going to bring into this trial? They're going to bring in a disbarred felon of an attorney and a former stripper as their star witnesses here. This is banana republic level stuff. And maybe that's what the, today's Democrats want. These leftists want. They're trying to destroy our country and they're they are well on their way. Now. In in life, all right, you you have an action, but then there's always a reaction. There's always a response. There are always results to things that you do. So first level thinking is I'm going to take an action. And by, by taking an action, I will move further towards my goals. But whenever you take an action, uh, other people respond if you're taking actions publicly. And if you're taking just actions privately, all right, you respond. You're affected by your actions. So... One thing that severely limited Donald Trump's ability to get things done in office is that he energized his opponents more than he energized his supporters. So now I think Alvin Bragg and the Democrats have done the, the same mistake that uh, Trump engaged in. It seems to me 
just my feel of things that uh, there's going to be far more energy on the part of uh, Trump supporters being unleashed by this compared to left-wing energy. More details about the charges in the coming days. The Manhattan DA's office issued a statement a short while ago saying this. This evening, we contacted Mr. Trump's attorney to coordinate his surrender to the Manhattan DA's office for arraignment on a Supreme Court indictment, which remains under seal. Guidance will be provided when the arraignment date is selected. Now, Trump has denied any wrongdoing and says he did not have an affair with Stormy Daniels, but Trump's former lawyer and fixer, Michael Cohen, testified that he paid Daniels $130,000 not to speak about her relationship with the former president and that Trump reimbursed him for that payment. And in a tweet, a lawyer for Stormy Daniels said in part, the indictment of Donald Trump is no cause for joy. The hard work and of the grand jurors must be respected. Now let truth and justice prevail. No one is above the law. Fox News also has confirmed that Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg is also looking at hush money payments made to Karen McDonald before the 2016 election. Now, earlier this week, former National Enquirer publisher David Pecker testified before the grand jury for a second time. Pecker is believed to have played a key role in connection to Cohen and Daniels, as well as buying the rights to a story about McDougal, but never publishing it in a practice called Catch and Kill. During a rally in Waco Saturday, Trump, who is again running for president, claimed he is under investigation for something that is not a crime, not a misdemeanor, not an affair. Now, Trump faces three other criminal investigations that we've been reporting on including efforts to overturn the 2020 election, keeping classified documents at Mar-a-Lago and the January 6th Capitol attack. And uh, we have a very busy scene down here in Manhattan tonight. We'll bring you more as we get it. Jesse? Is there any intensity on the streets? What does it feel like down there? You know, I mean, it's just a, a very packed block. We've got reporters and camera crews, uh, NYPD. There is security you know, down here. There are a few people with signs, uh, but nothing as of, uh, you know, nothing crazy happening at the moment. Uh, but we're keeping an eye on it. All right. Thanks so much. Let's bring it back to Paul Morrow, former NYPD inspector and attorney. The irony of this stupid case is that the left-wing media catches and kills every negative piece about a Democrat. How many times does the media hush up a bad story? Okay, that's a ridiculous point. Jesse Waters making a lot of stupid points. All right, uh, plenty of uh, negative stories about Democrats. Like, remember the Me Too movement? All right, almost all the major figures in the Me Too movement were, were Democrats. And uh, negative stories about them, you know, flooded into the press, starting with Harvey Weinstein. So, no, the... The mainstream media doesn't generally practice uh, capture and kill. So, so many things to think about. So doing the big showy thing, like indicting Trump, all right, that's one thing. But have you done the hard work, all right, to actually get something done? So I'm just thinking about a story in the Bible where Avram and Sarai have been promised by God that they'll get to have kids. And nothing happens, and years go by, and finally Sarai says to Abraham, you should take my maidservant and make a baby with her. And so Sarah, Sarai was being very sacrificing, all right, but she couldn't handle it. So she ended up, you know, being very cruel to Hagar and drove her out of the camp. And so it's one thing to take a big dramatic stand, but are you able to follow through? So 
Alvin Bragg is taking this action. So is he ready to deal with the reaction? And living in New York City, he lives in a bubble, all right? New York City is about four to one Democrat. So he lives in a bubble. Is he prepared for the for the blowback? Is he competent? Is he effective at, at what he does? And uh, a Democrat's prepared for the blowback. So my sense of thing, uh, my sense of things is that this will energize Donald Trump supporters by three, four, five times the amount of energy that this is going to give uh, Trump detractors. And when people have energy, they can be incredibly disruptive and effective. So the Democrats did a pretty good job limiting Donald Trump's ability to uh, make changes when he was president of the United States. Now, now the uh, Republicans are out of uh, presidential office. We've got Trump indicted. So what will be the Republican response? So I remember when uh, President Obama passed Obamacare without one single Republican vote. All right, we've never had such nation-changing legislation passed without one single vote from the opposition party and Republicans romped to major victories in 2010 and uh, just completely reinvigorated Republican prospects. So let's have a look at the chat. Alexander says Trump supporters won't do anything. Why would Trump need to spend campaign money when he already has billions? Why would he need to hush a prostitute story when he's been married three times? Since when does paying people to be silent actually work? You'd expect a master of the art of the deal to know this. So let's get a little bit more commentary here from it's very Fox. Very bad for the country. We have crossed the Rubicon here. I don't know how we go back. There's going to be a tit for tat in the future, and uh, uh, the, this is horrific judgment on Bragg's part. He's selfish. Uh, this is a malicious prosecution. He's putting himself before his country, but we should expect that because he's a George Soros-funded prosecutor, and those people generally don't like America, and they want to destroy America, and we're well on our way. You say it's going to be a tit-for-tat. How do you know that? How do you know the Republicans are just going to stick their heads in the sand and never get revenge? Because now you're in a revenge political climate. I mean, if... Well, with, with an action this significant, there's always going to be blowback. And so there's no doubt that Republicans will, will take action. And when you have you know, fired up people who account for approximately half of the country, all right, they can, they can do, do a lot of damage. So if you're going to do something so extraordinary as indicting former president of the United States, you would want it to be as compelling as possible. You'd want a strong case so that people who are independent, who weren't you know, with you or against you, could see what you're doing and would be inclined to favor you. So I, I've been blogging since 1997, and I've got myself into some pretty tight corners, and it's always kind of been a guiding star for me is that I really want to try to keep you know, 51% at least of my readers and people who are affected by my writing or my live streaming on my side. I, I try to phrase things, present things, uncover things, pronounce on things in ways that you know the, the widest possible audience can hear, understand, and sympathize with. And so this Alvin Bragg indictment, all right, just an extraordinary event. Has he done the groundwork so that people who don't have a dog in this fight are going to see what he's doing and go, oh, okay, I can kind of see that. But I'm thinking the 
Joe Biden Justice Department, right? They they raided Donald Trump's home for you know minor league documents. All right, I mean, as time's gone gone past now, it's uh, what approximately nine months since Donald Trump was was raided, and they the the Justice Department really hasn't provided. A, a compelling case that more and more it looks like an incredibly trivial act it was you know it was a battle over documents for you know historians and battle over you know documents for a bureaucracy it wasn't it wasn't a life and death national security matter it was you know petty bureaucratic paper shuffling matter and again with the Donald Trump indictment right now we haven't seen the indictment but right now it looks like you know petty you know bureaucratic indictment so law is never just objective all right law is always carried out by human beings who are of course uh subjective let's get a burst from tucker carlson good evening and welcome to tucker carlson tonight a fox news alert american politics was thrown into complete chaos perhaps permanently about three hours ago when a grand jury in Manhattan, one of the most liberal cities in America, a place where 80% voted for Joe Biden in the last election, decided to indict Biden's political opponent in the upcoming election, the Republican frontrunner, a man who leads by 30 points in polls, Donald Trump. And the jury did this at the urging of a man called Alvin Bragg. He's the Manhattan district attorney who has been famous so far by making the city much more dangerous by refusing to enforce laws against crimes like robbery and rape. Now, we don't know at this hour what the indictment says. We don't know specifically what the charges are. But previous news reports suggest they will emanate from an alleged payment seven years ago, a payment that federal regulators said violated no law, but that Alvin Bragg apparently believes is a crime. Either way, the net result is Donald Trump is the first former president of the United States ever to be indicted. So no matter what happens next, we can be certain there is no coming back from this moment. There could be retaliation from red states. The governor of Florida has already said Ron DeSantis has already issued a statement saying that he will not participate in any extradition of Donald Trump to New York. That's apparently scheduled for next week. As you can probably tell, we're not certain of the full outlines of the story, but we know this moment is a historic one. We want to set tonight in facts, those that we have so far. We're going to do that as we always do with the help of Fox's Trace Gallagher, who is with us tonight on set. Hey, Trace. And we're going to have more of DeSantis coming up on this, but it's important to remember, Tucker, that Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg has chosen to pursue a case that was investigated and rejected by two previous sets of prosecutors because, one, the case is politically explosive, as we all know, and, two, it requires using largely untested legal theory. In fact, even Alvin Bragg... So, normally, lawyers do not take like to take cases that other lawyers have rejected all right so Albert Bragg's predecessors predecessors were much smarter than he is and in general it's kind of a, a legal precedent that uh, once a lawyer fi finds out that you know some other lawyer has rejected your case they generally lose interest right why would another lawyer think that he can't you know make money or 
fame from your case. Bragg himself initially decided against prosecuting Trump. The case, as Tucker was saying, is centered around a $130,000 payment to porn star Stormy Daniels, who claims she had an affair with Trump. The DA, Alvin Bragg, could not charge this case as a misdemeanor because the statute of limitations on a misdemeanor ran out back in 2018. And to charge it as a felony, the Manhattan DA had to perform what many call legal gymnastics and say it was a campaign finance violation going down that road. Numerous legal experts have pointed out that it would be monumentally improbable to prove that Donald Trump paid Stormy Daniels in an effort to win the White House instead of, say, an effort to save his marriage, etc. Here's law professor Jonathan Turley weighing in on the indictment just a short time ago. Watch. The concern is that if this theory is actually the basis of the indictment, uh, then this is a rather ignoble moment in history. Donald Trump may be the first pre former president to be indicted, but if this is the standard, he won't be the last. The case would rely almost solely on the testimony of former Trump lawyer Michael Cohen, who claims that Donald Trump directed him to pay Stormy Daniels the hush money on the eve of the 2016 election in exchange for keeping her quiet. But Michael Cohen is also a convicted felon. And there's, there's a context for this of the uh, Joe Biden Justice Department going after, you know, all sorts of his enemies. So we had that guy... Uh, ah blanking out his name, but uh, he got indicted for, for posting memes saying there's, there's no need to go into vote. You can vote via text message. And uh, then we had the, the journalist doing the Twitter files, right? He had IRS agents showing up at his, his door. And so we've had this reckless overreach in general from the Joe Biden Justice Department. Now, Alvin Bragg has overreached, and so many times the Democrats overreached in their opposition to Donald Trump that uh, when you can drive people insane, as Trump has often done, right, you can you can prop them into all sorts of errors. And this, without knowing the indictment yet, this looks like a completely unforced error on the part of Alvin Bragg. Who's known for stretching the truth. Cohn's formal legal advisor, a man named Robert Costello, who testified before this grand jury, was on Tucker Carlson tonight back on March 20th. Watch this. I called them up uh, after I saw Michael Cohn on TV stating things that he said he was going to tell the grand jury and had told the grand jury that were contrary to what he told us when we first represented him in April of 2018. So I'm sitting at home watching these lies, and I said, I've got to do something about it. Okay, so we still don't know what the actual charges are because it's unlikely they'll be unsealed until the former president legally surrenders, which likely would happen sometime next week. Donald Trump issued a statement about the indictment that reads in part, quoting here, the Democrats have lied, cheated, and stolen in their obsession with trying to get Trump, but now they've done the unthinkable, indicting a completely innocent person in an act of blatant election interference. Even Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who could run against Trump in 2024, slammed the indictment, quoting again, the weaponization of the legal system to advance a political agenda turns the rule of law on its head. It okay, let's get some commentary here from uh, CNN. Um, and I am told by my sources that this is 34 counts of falsification of business records, uh, which is probably a lot of charges uh, involving each document, each thing that was submitted as a separate count um, okay. in a couple of matters. 
Um, and I am told by my sources that this is 30. Okay, so it seems, seems pretty trivial to do something so extraordinary. It is un-American. And DeSantis makes a great point because if the charges are what we expect, then it does appear this is a political prosecution. Federal prosecutors have repeatedly turned this case down, and now you have a state prosecutor taking it on. Donald Trump's poll numbers have gone. Right. Do you really think that Alvin Bragg is smarter, more effective, more capable, wiser, more far-seeing, has a more profound grasp of, of reality than all these other prosecutors who turned the case down? Right. I'm highly skeptical. Gone up in the past month, and this could lift those numbers even further because there will be a groundswell of emotion for or against. It doesn't matter. That groundswell will continue to rise, Tucker. I think that is absolutely right. I think I think Trump's numbers actually in the last 10 days, in one poll anyway, went from eight up to 30 up. Yeah. Uh, so this all kinds of consequences, only some we can predict. Trace Gallagher, thank you, yeah. as always. So obviously this indictment is something brand new, the beginning of something, but it's also the culmination of something, the culmination of an effort to make certain that Donald Trump is never elected president again. That was the whole purpose of the January 6th committee obviously. So far, it's not working. Trump is leading the Republican field for the nomination by a wide margin. In Georgia, a partisan grand jury whose forewoman is giving interviews to MSNBC is apparently also preparing to charge Donald Trump with the crime of doubling, of doubting election results. You're not allowed to doubt election results in Georgia unless you're Stacey Abrams, in which case you get to claim to be governor when you're not. And as far as we know, the DOJ is still investigating Donald Trump on another pretextual offense, storing supposedly classified documents in his home, something that we later discovered that virtually everyone who's ever served in federal office apparently does, including Mike Pence. But take three steps back. Pause for a minute. Consider the escalation in tactics on display here. In the 2016 election, when the most powerful interests in this country decided that Donald Trump could not be president, and in fact, for the most part, assumed he would never be. It was just too ridiculous to be real. But just to make certain that he never was, the FBI worked with the Clinton campaign to spread false allegations. So remember, a major theme in the news media and among Democrats is that uh, America's democracy is in peril. Well, removing the American people's ability to vote for Donald Trump, you, you would think that uh, that might strike some people as uh, somewhat undemocratic. So... There's a populist groundswell among you know, half of the, the population for, for people like uh, Donald Trump. And then who, who are the enemies of the you know, populace? All right? It's the elites who can only rule if they can keep America divided and they can then make alliances with you know, the various segments. But if there is an increasingly united America, all right, then the people can more effectively take back power from the elites. So we're moving into a world where more and more of the most important decisions are delegated to supposedly neutral experts and are taken out of the hands of, of people and their ability to make choices and their ability to choose their representatives to make choices on their behalf. And so this seems to be an extension of, of rule by experts. So the experts have decided that uh, you know people like Donald Trump should not be allowed to run for political office. But the president had been colluding with the government of Russia, but the FBI was never defunded and shut down as it would have been in a functioning country 
it continued to interfere in elections and does so to this day. That, of course, didn't work, and Trump took office anyway. So federal agencies did everything they could to make certain that Trump would be an ineffective and one-term president. Within days, they arrested Trump's national security advisor. Why did they do that? Because he had run an intel agency, and he knew exactly how the system works. They took him out first. Then they had a CIA operative in the White House file a fake whistleblower complaint about Ukraine, and that got Trump impeached. And then they impeached Trump again for holding a constitutionally protected rally to call on his supporters to peacefully protest what had happened to him, as you would in a democracy. So this effort today is one in a long line of unprecedented ste steps that permanent Washington has taken to stop Donald Trump from holding office in a democracy. Whether you like Trump or not, that is true. But none of that has stopped Republican primary voters from telling pollsters that far and away Donald Trump is their first choice for president in 2024. In fact, it may have changed their minds and made them support Trump again. Maybe not because they love Trump, but because they hate to see their beloved system destroyed, subverted and destroyed for political reasons. So the rule of law appears to be suspended tonight, not just for Trump, but for anyone who would consider voting for him. Democrats can attack police officers and seize control of the Tennessee State House. They did that today, and no one's going to go to jail. Trans-Biden voters can execute Christian children, and the Biden White House will explain that actually the trans community, the transgenderists, are the real victim. This is what it seems to be. It's a political purge. And confronted with it, the real Quislings here, who are the Republican leaders in Washington, are naturally calling for a surrender. Asa Hutchinson is saying that Donald Trump needs to withdraw now because Alvin Bragg doesn't like him. So one of the reasons that Trump won in the first place in 2016 is because people like Asa Hutchinson, people who have no interest in winning or governing, and least of all in representing their actual voters or their interests, people like that have been in charge of the Republican Party for generations now, and its voters are sick of it. And if those people continue to run the Republican Party much longer, that party will no longer exist within a few years. There'll be no reason to have it. What you're seeing now is lawlessness, and the question is who can stop it. Alina Haba is Donald Trump's attorney. Alina joins us tonight. Alina, thank you so much uh, for coming on. I guess the key question here, there's so much to sort. Okay, we'll keep an eye on uh, all the commentary or all the news, but I just thought I'd go in a different direction for a little while. How hard work destroys character. The case against making talented young people do menial labor. So this is on the website American Greatness, and it's by... Uh, Josiah Lippincott. I find it find it interesting. It, it touches on a lot of different topics that I have opinions about in different directions. So Josiah says, I pulled myself up by my bootstraps a half a dozen times over, and I resent every minute of it. So d does, does hard work uh, build character? I mean, does anything inherently build character? Does, you know, going to a Holocaust museum, does that uh, build, build character? Okay, so nothing is guaranteed to, to build character. Not, not even hard work. And uh, I, I think that's, that's a good point. I pull myself up by my bootstraps a half a dozen times over. I resent every minute of it. Hard work does not in itself improve character. So... Good question. 
So particularly for people who are under earners, if you're engaged in an under earning job, if you are you know, demeaning yourself, all right, if you are wasting your talents in some you know, low end, low paying occupation, no, I, I don't think that builds your character. I don't think that makes you a better person, right? I, I think that's uh, self-destructive, right? Hard work does not in and of itself improve character. Yeah, that, that's true. So you could be you know, using that time to make more money more effectively, to learn different skills, to build your social network, to you know, pursue hobbies, to pursue learning, to volunteer. For a talented and spirited young man, especially doing menial labor for pitiful wages under idiot supervisors, not only fails to build character, can destroy it. Well, I don't think it destroys it, but I did a lot of you know menial labor for pitiful wages frequently under idiot supervisors. It just reminds you that there's something wrong with your life. It reminds you that you're not navigating reality effectively. So it's kind of a distinction between two 12-step programs with regard to money. Debtors Anonymous says you need to start working, you know, just take any job at least. Uh, Under Owners Anonymous says, no, don't, don't take any job. Only take those jobs that will pay you enough to meet your needs. And I guess in that dispute, for most people, I think they're better off with the Under Owners approach. Man does not exist to labor for the sake of laboring. I, I agree with that. Work must serve a purpose. Yes, it must be fit to the nature of one doing it. Well, you should be paying your way in life if you're an adult. So whatever you need to do to pay your way in life, if it's you know legal and upstanding. The modern liberal bureaucratic corporate state with its hatred of excellence, beauty, and strength actively seeks to destroy the natural hierarchy of labor and laborers. Well, by bringing in so much immigration, all right, that has driven down wages, right? The government gets to decide what wages are paid to to laborers all right if we didn't have all this unlimited immigration we'd be off to you know pay people a lot more so i'm looking at trump's lawyer on tucker i don't really have to admit i don't really care for her so i might try out a commentary here from uh, glenn greenwald let's see what he has to say it was really just joe scarborough and Hassan talking and they announced that if you note that this prosecutor was elected through $500,000, that's a lot of money in a local district attorney race provided by George Soros, it means you are anti-Semitic, which means you cannot talk about that, or you will be have one of the most destructive and radioactive labels placed on your forehead in American public life, an anti-Semitic. It doesn't matter that it's true, which it is. You're not allowed to talk about it. Let's show the video of them setting up this attempt to prevent what they are embarrassed about, namely how politicized this prosecutor is and this prosecution is from being discussed. Let's show that video. Talk about how off they are trying to paint uh, this DA as, as some tool of a Jewish international banker. Yeah, it's become kind of fact on the right, but as so many facts on the right turn out to be, they're not factual at all. Uh, and we did some digging on my show into this nonsense. You heard Stefanik say he got a million dollars from George Soros. None of that's true. Alvin Bragg, just hear the facts, Joe. Alvin Bragg announced his candidacy for DA in June of 2019. In May of 2021, a pack called Color of Change said, we're going to spend some money promoting Alvin Bragg's candidacy. George Soros, a few days later, gives them a million dollars. They end up spending a half a million dollars on Alvin Bragg's campaign. They don't give the money to Bragg. It's their own ads promoting Bragg. No money changes hands. So Color of Change gave no money 
to George uh, to Alvin Bragg. George Soros gave no money to Alvin Bragg, not even indirectly. No, no million dollars, no half a million dollars. We reached out to the Soros people. George Soros, they say, has never met with Alvin Bragg, never spoken to Alvin Bragg, never phoned Alvin Bragg, never emailed Alvin Bragg, never been on a Zoom call with Alvin Bragg, never given a dime to Alvin Bragg. So in what world, in what world is Al- Alvin Bragg a Soros DA or a Soros-backed animal, to quote disgustingly Donald Trump? Only in the fevered imagination of the anti-Semitic conspiracy theorists who now dominate the American conservative movement. By the way, Joe, quick point. Republicans say they love money in politics. Money is speech. So even if he did give money to Bragg, which he didn't, what's wrong with that? What objection could they have to the Jewish billionaire Holocaust survivor? I can't possibly imagine. I I honestly find that repulsive, repulsive, that segment they just did there. I find it so deeply disgusting for Mehdi Hassan and Joe Scarborough to That is disgusting. I mean, let, let's be honest. George Soros backs DAs who don't prosecute people who do heinous things. I mean, George Soros-based DAs are just objectively pro-gun violence. This is Steve Saylor writing, One of the strangest developments of 2020 suggests as the mainstream media has cranked up its campaign against gun violence to new levels. The George Soros-backed district attorneys, whom the media helped elect with their racial reckoning, are turning the heat against gun violence way down. Good examples in Oakland right now. So with the aid of George Soros's money, a black civil rights lawyer named Pamela Y. Price was recently elected district attorney of Alameda County. So she presides over Oakland, Berkeley, and Fremont. Her main goal is to reduce the number of black criminals behind bars. So blacks who, who are doing horrible, violent things are now getting punished. Leftist activists know something that has been obscured in the minds of much of the general public that uh, you know certain groups commit vastly more gun crimes and violent crimes per capita than other groups. So reducing the number of blacks behind bars has to mean going easier on gun crimes. Now, the Asians are not too thrilled with this. So in Alameda County, Asians are outraged over the murder of a two-year-old Jasper Wu. His toddler was struck dead in his car seat by a stray bullet from a gunfight between two black gangs rolling down I-880. And so the Asians don't like this that uh, this uh, George Soros DA who's so soft on you know, murderers. Maybe Maybe something will get done. Email that's raising serious concerns about how District Attorney Pamela Price may proceed in the Jasper Wu case. Good evening, I'm Amma Dates. And I'm Dan Ashley. Thanks for joining us. Alameda County District Attorney Pamela Price is drawing new criticism tonight over her plans not to pursue jail time for three men charged in the death of a little boy who was shot as he rode in the back of his mother's car on an Oakland freeway. Yeah, Price discussed that in an email obtained by the I-team's Dan Noisen. He's here with our exclusive report, Dan. Well, Amma and Dan Price wrote this email as an update on the Jasper Wu case. The little boy lost to gang violence in November of 2021. 23-month-old Jasper Wu lost his life to a stray bullet while riding in his car seat. It happened because two rival gangs were having a rolling gun battle on Highway 880. Three men, Trevor Green, Johnny Jackson, and Ivory Bevins, have their preliminary hearing on murder charges in three weeks. A member of the AAPI community asked Alameda County District Attorney Pamela Price for an update on the case. And Price sent this email yesterday that reads in part, Our office is currently working on a partnership with the Asian Law Caucus to support AAPI victims of violence in ways that open up broader possibilities for healing and non-carceral forms of accountability. 
non-carceral, meaning no jail time, even for violent criminals. If I were Jasper's parents, I would be highly offended and I would be very fearful. Norbert Chu is a retired Alameda County Senior Deputy District Attorney. He served for 35 years. He says looking at that email, it is clear Price is paving the way for lesser charges and lesser sentencing in the Jasper Wu case. He called it insulting. The tone to me is that somehow we're lesser victims than other people, and that is, that's just stupefying. And you're lesser victims than the perpetrators. Exactly. A spokesman for the Wu family sent us a statement saying under Price's plan, there are almost no consequences due to no threat of severe punishments waiting. How would that restore public's faith in the justice system? How would the public feel safe? I also checked with the Asian Law Caucus, and they knew nothing about Price's emails, saying the first meeting with her office was just introductory and had nothing to do with Jasper Wu. Said the caucus's executive director, I'm very confused about this. Just two days ago, I talked with a prosecutor who quit the Alameda County DA's office over Price's plans to drop sentencing enhancements, potentially even those in the Jasper Wu case. And to just do it as a knee-jerk reaction without proper information is, I think, really sad for the family and I think can result in injustice and can result in more people getting hurt, more gun battles down the freeway, right? In the you actually felt that lives would be lost because of Price being elected. I really did. And I hoped that I was being dramatic. I hoped that I was wrong. And now that her policies are playing out, I know that I wasn't. Price is shaking things up. With each passing day, I'm receiving new information about plea deals that favor criminals and leave victims of violent crime feeling like they haven't received justice. The court records tell the story. April 29th, 2018, a Sunday, 2 in the afternoon. Unlicensed driver Cesar Garcia speeds 70 miles an hour northbound 880 in a red sedan like this one, makes an unsafe lane change, sideswiping a car, sending it into the south wall. Several people suffer serious injuries in the crash, including a pregnant woman who lost her eight-month-old fetus as a result. Garcia ditches the car in this parking lot and tries to report it stolen. Former Alameda County District Attorney Nancy O'Malley charged Garcia with felony leaving the scene of an accident and felony reckless driving with serious injury. But this month, new DA Pamela Price offered a deal. Garcia pled no contest to vandalism and got released with time served just one year in county jail. Pamela Price and her administration are putting criminal defendants, criminal suspects, before victims. Ten-year veteran prosecutor Charlie Weisenbach resigned from the Alameda County DA's office effective March 17th because, quote, I no longer feel capable of fulfilling my legal and ethical duties as a prosecutor under this administration. Victims of crime still do have some rights, and those are being ignored and flagrantly disregarded. And it's really sad and hard to watch, and I didn't want to be a part of that. And Price's handling of that hit-and-run case gets worse. I've learned through multiple sources the Price's office did not inform the woman who lost her baby about the plea deal or the reduced sentence until after it was done. The victim is devastated. Sources inside the DA's office tell me it's actually state law that a victim be informed about a coming plea bargain and have a chance to speak at sentencing. 
neither of those happened in the deadly hit-and-run case that turned into a simple vandalism. Why was that the appropriate charge? What am I missing here? W. David Ball is a Santa Clara University professor specializing in criminal law and procedure. Pamela Price's own staff pointed me to him as someone who would defend her policies. And that's not a political anti-Pamela Price kind of thing, but that's one where it's like, yeah, why did you do that? Yeah, this victim, I mean, she felt bad about this. And I feel for her. Uh, she's thinking, I mean, our, my baby was only worth a vandalism charge. Yeah, right, right. That, that's a tough one. No, I think that I, I agree with you on that. I wanted to ask Pamela Price about this case and more, but she refuses to be interviewed, even after I caught her in an elevator at the Fallon Street Courthouse last week. My vision is to serve Alameda County as a minister of justice. After her oath of office in January, one of her first directives to all attorneys and staff, they must address her as Madam D.A. Price. We will be prosecutors who will use our power to change lives and not destroy them. She released this memo March 8th, instructing prosecutors to stop using sentencing enhancements, which bring higher prison terms. As she's saying, uh, we're going to get somebody on, on armed robbery. That's what we're going to charge them with. We're not going to charge them with a variety of other enhancements. Like a gun enhancement. Right, a gun enhancement, a gang enhancement, things like that, unless it's warranted. And, 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 and it has to be extraordinary circumstances. That is already impacting high-profile cases. David Misch is in prison for murder, but Price is throwing out special circumstances in a case with three new victims, including nine-year-old Michaela Garrett in Hayward from 1988. means that there is no additional punishment for the fact that he's a serial killer, by definition, um, and that he committed those murders, at least motivated in one or more of them, by sexual assault. The parents of toddler Jasper Wu, killed by a stray bullet during a rolling gun battle in 880, are concerned Price will throw out gang enhancements in their case. And to just do it as a knee-jerk reaction without proper information is, I think, really sad for the family and I think can result in injustice and can result in more people getting hurt, more gun battles down the freeway, right? And just last Thursday, a judge rejected Price's plea deal for Delonzo Logwood. He's accused of three murders and faces 75 years to life in prison if convicted. Price offered 15 years on a single voluntary manslaughter charge. What that tells the community is that three young black men were murdered and each of their lives is worth five years each. All this has already prompted a push to recall Price, including from victims' rights groups. You said to other media that she should be recalled. I did say that. Do you still believe that? I still believe what I believed then. I don't see any change. A petition to recall Price has passed 3,000 signatures. An official recall in Alameda County needs about 92,000 signatures. Brenda Grisham lost her son to a stray bullet during a 2010 gang shooting. No charges ever filed, even though she knows the identity of the killer. It's still a traumatic loss for me. So I could imagine if, you know, you have somebody that's already in jail and then they get a free pass when your loved one didn't get a free pass. Veteran prosecutors are not getting a free pass under Pamela Price. She made her intentions clear in this speech two months ago to an anti-police terror project rally posted to the group's Instagram. Yes, it's a new day. The motherfucks is gone, most of them. I'm working on the rest, okay? I find it really hard to believe that every prosecutor in that office is no good. Right, that's what it feels like she believes, that we're criminals, that we're racists, that 
she does not support who we are as humans and the career choices we have made and dedicated our lives to. The I-team has confirmed Pamela Price has placed seven attorneys on leave, fired one, ten have resigned, four retired, all because of Price as a source. That's 22 experienced prosecutors gone out of an office with 135 attorneys. Are you having an exit interview? No. If you had a chance to tell Pamela Price something, what would you tell her? I think that I would implore her to see beyond herself, implore her to learn about what we do and why we do it. Because if you're going to head an office where you have ethical and legal duties to uphold, then you need to know what those are and then you need to abide by them. Charlie Weisenbach has already started work at the San Francisco DA's office. Okay, and so Alvin Bragg is just like uh, Ms. Price, the Alameda County DA. All right, let's get more here from Glenn Greenwald. Take anti-Semitism and the Holocaust and treat it like their little toy to prevent you from talking about the truth, which is that George Soros' money was fundamental for the election of Alvin Bragg, and to claim that anyone who mentions it is an anti-Semite who's somehow mocking the Who was Mehdi Hassan and Joe Scarborough to, to, to take anti-Semitism and trifle with it in that manner? It's repulsive. And the reason it's repulsive is because it is a fact, despite what those liars you just watched said, that George Soros' money was fundamental in the election of Alvin Bragg. It is true that George Soros didn't give his money directly to Alvin Bragg because that's not how campaign finance works. A individual like George Sheldon Adelson or uh, George Soros or anybody else who wants to use money to influence elections and we're going to get to Sheldon Adelson in a minute because people like Mehdi Hassan and Democrats had no qualms at all constantly talking about how Sheldon Adelson, the Israeli-American Jewish billionaire, used his money to turn the Republican Party into a puppet of Israel, in their view. That was totally fine. I'm going to get to that in a minute. But what they're trying to say is that this is not just anti-Semitic, but it's a lie because George Soros never gave any money to Alvin Bragg. This is actually what happened. Mehdi actually acknowledged this in passing to try and say that it was actually disinformation because he had to. The way that it always works is that when very rich people want to give their money to influence an election, they can't give it directly to the candidate. They instead give it to a PAC. That PAC then goes off and does campaigning for the candidate, runs negative attack ads against his opponent, runs favorable ads on TV on his behalf. And as long as there's no coordination between the PAC and the candidate campaign, it's not considered a direct donation to the candidate. And that way, people like George Soros can give as much money as they want to... PACs that are working to elect people like Alvin Bragg, and that's exactly what happened here. So here you see on the screen, on May 8th of 2021, the Color of Change PAC, which is a PAC that works to elect progressive prosecutors, people who believe in imprisoning people as for nonviolent crimes, things that actually some policies actually support. Criminal justice reform was a policy that Donald Trump actually implemented, working with the ACLU. And Color of Change, though, believes in basically prosecutors who don't want to put violent criminals in jail. They want to put people like Donald Trump in prison, but not violent criminals. They want to use prison much less. And this is a major cause of George Soros is to elect DAs like that. So the color of change saw Alvin Bragg as one of these kinds of prosecutors because that's what he ran on. We're over. Okay, Glenn Greenwald making some good points there. Matt Taibbi writes on Twitter. He says, uh, I, I lean towards this Trump indictment being a net funny development, unless, of course, this ends with civil war. And all of us are massacred by robot armies. <laughs> He'd like to win, but he thinks that this is a grave threat to the country. Vivek, thank you so much for coming on tonight. How do you view this indictment? 
This is a grave day in American democracy. I mean, this is a threat. This is fundamentally un-American. And, Tucker, it's not even about Donald Trump. It's about every American, because if they can do it to Trump, they can do it to you. And this is something about that's bigger than partisan politics. Yes, I would like to defeat Donald Trump in this primary and in the election. But I want to do it by convincing every voter to vote for me, because at the end of the day, the American people get to decide who governs this country, not a politicized prosecutor. And if you want to know how it's politicized, this is a prosecutor who is effectively fulfilling a campaign promise that he made. If it's any individual citizen and a prosecutor campaigns on indicting him or investigating him, that itself is politicized, let alone when he's the lead member of the opposition party to the ruling party that's in power. And we are not a country, Tucker. Whoever we are as a country, it's not a country that allows police power to be used by the ruling party to arrest its political opponents. Yet that's exactly what happened today. And I don't care if you're on the left or the right. Turn the table, wear the shoe on the other foot. Okay, I wonder what uh, Laura Luma has to say. Okay. Okay, people have been calling me crazy, saying that this was never going to happen. And now, right, they're hoping that nobody notices as the media and everyone's pointing out is going to be totally consumed with all of this uh, all of this news regarding Donald Trump and the indictment and what this means for our country in the 2024 election. He's he's taken the opportunity. DeSantis has taken the opportunity to stab Trump in the back. So in case you needed any more evidence that Ron DeSantis is totally morally bankrupt and is an agent uh, for the radical left and a Trojan horse pretending to be MAGA and an absolute grifter who used President Donald Trump and the MAGA base to expand on his political career. I mean, I, I don't know how it gets worse than this. I, every single true Trump supporter should disavow Ron DeSantis over what he just did today. Laura, thanks for coming in and thank you for that news. We really appreciate it. We were also talking earlier about that ridiculous statement put out that didn't mention his name and the fact that they mentioned Soros twice in it was a veiled campaign with regard to them bragging the last week or so about him firing Andrew, I forget his last name. So that statement was just a was just a campaign pitch. Well, it's all a front. You know, we all know that Governor Ron DeSantis doesn't really dislike Ron doesn't really dislike George Soros. At the end of the day, Ron DeSantis was fully embraced by George Soros, who was talking about how he hopes that Ron DeSantis is the nominee and that he admires him because he's cunning, right? Cunning and brutal is what he said. So uh, George Soros isn't going to ever give a compliment out about President Trump, right? Because President Trump is the enemy to the radical left. He's the enemy to the rhino establishment. He's the enemy to the deep state. And clearly, you know, you see a lot of leftists and you see a lot of, uh, you know, people who flirt with the idea of, of George Soros supporting uh, Ron DeSantis, which is a major red flag. OK, so in case you needed another reason never to support this guy. And, another and I, is- I don't care. I don't care. Look, if Donald Trump is the nominee in 2024, great. I, I, I'm going to be supporting President Trump. I don't care what happens in 2028. I will never vote for Governor Ron DeSantis. I will campaign against him, okay? I will campaign against him so that he never gets into the White House and never holds another political office ever again. I don't care if that means that he loses to a Democrat. I will do everything in my power to make sure that Governor Ron DeSantis is destroyed. Yeah, I mean, people people used to say Trump. Okay, that's uh, Laura Luba going hard against uh, Ron DeSantis. All right, let's uh, let's see what uh, Jason Whitlock 
has to say. Here he is talking with Tucker Carlson. Watching. Thank you. Thank you. Jason Whitlock is a frequent guest on the show for a reason. He brings insight that few others have. He's host of Fearless. He joins us tonight in the wake of what seems like momentous news. Jason, what's your reaction to this? Tucker, uh, <clears throat> I, I hear you loud and clear. Uh, I've been watching all week. You've been doing a marvelous job. I do think all of this is tied together. I live here in Nashville, Tennessee, where we had a transgender person uh, murder three young children. Uh, the, today in, in our state capital, which is right here in, in Nashville, uh, the transgender anti-gun crowd uh, took over the house uh, for a time. And then by the time I get home, I find out uh, Donald Trump has been indicted. And I hear you loud and clear. They are agitating for unrest. Th that th That's the only way to interpret this. They are agitating for unrest. And there is a godless element in this country that doesn't care about fairness. They, doesn't, they don't care about the will of the people. They care about power and control. As you have spelled out this week, they think they're God, and they don't think they can make up the rules. They can decide what fairness is. They don't. Okay, I don't think uh, the opponents of Donald Trump believe they're God. I, I don't find that a particularly strong argument. Let's get more green. Imprisoning people, we should use non-prison methods of punishment. This was in 2021, so less than a year after the George Floyd protests when all of that defund the prison, defund the police and abolish prisons was in the air, especially in New York and Manhattan. So Alvin Bragg ran on that platform, the Color of Change Pack, endorsed him because of it. And then shortly after, so that was on May 2021, they announced their endorsement of Alvin Bragg. And then six days later, not even a week, there you see on the screen, George Soros donated a million dollars to that pack, to the Color of Change Pack, and that's from Open Secrets. So... Alvin Bragg announces his candidacy for Manhattan District Attorney. The Color of Change PAC endorses Alvin Bragg. And then six days later, George Soros gives that PAC that endorsed Alvin Bragg a million dollars. And that PAC used $500,000 of that money given to, him by, given to it by George Soros to promote Alvin Bragg's candidacy. So, so there's nothing illegal about it. That's how campaign finance works. That's why George Soros did it that way. You can't give $500,000 to Alvin Bragg. You can give $500,000 to a pack that supported Alvin Bragg. So Alvin Bragg absolutely got elected in large part because of George Soros's money. That is a fact. And you can argue whether it's relevant or not, but to call that anti-Semitic, to point out that this is such a liberal prosecutor that George Soros, who only wants to elect liberal prosecutors, helped elect him. Of course, that's relevant to showing whether this is a politicized prosecution or not. But again, they're embarrassed by it. So they want to call you an anti-Semite if you want to point it out. Now, what makes me so sick about that, and it genuinely makes me enraged and sick because there are a few things I hate more in American political life than people like Mehdi Hassan Joe Scarborough playing with toying with racism accusations or anti-semitism accusations or accusations of homophobia okay there's uh, new legislation to ban TikTok but it seems and to TikTok Act they call it the restrict act cute gives the government the power to quote review and prohibit certain transactions between persons in the United States and foreign adversaries. So not only no more mail-order brides, that means the government has the power to, quote, enforce any mitigation measure to address any risk arising from any covered transaction by any person or with any respect to any property 
subject to the jurisdiction of the United States that the secretary determines. Translation, the federal government wants to watch anything you do on the Internet. And I mean anything, any transaction, any search, any click, any scroll. The government can just say, Jesse may be involved with the Chinese. Let's take a look at his computer and iPhone. The government doesn't even need a reason. They can just make one up like they did with the Russia hoax. You want to know what a red flag is? The bill doesn't even say the word TikTok. And Congress is cut out. The courts cut out. The White House gets to decide what they want to look at and why. So if you're on an app on your phone or if you're just clicking through a website, maybe it's a foreign website, maybe it's not. How do you even know? The government doesn't need to know it's foreign. They can just want to know if it's foreign. And then it's open season on your search history. Do you want the Biden administration to go through your phone? Because that's what this bill does. They don't even need probable cause. This is a legal search and seizure. And then you go on the spy list where they have the power to quote, ready? Inspect, search, detain, and seize any of your records and information. That means your banking records, your photos. Without any evidence, you committed a crime. They can even break into your ring doorbell or your Xbox or your Amazon Alexa. Alexa, am I being spied on? Yes. Here's the best part. You're not allowed to challenge it. On the last sentence, there's a little footnote, and it says you can't file a Freedom of Information Act request about it. And then on another footnote, it says these powers can't be reviewed by the court, but the government can release what they want about you. Oh, Jesse called me Sleepy Joe again. That's it. Uh, hey, New York Times, here's Jesse's search history going back 10 years. So don't go to the wrong website or don't make the White House angry because you can even go to prison for up to 20 years for violating the statute. So already there's almost nothing you can do if uh, bureaucrats rule against you. All right. What can you do? vis-a-vis bureaucrats generally speaking you can't sue them the executive branch has very limited power over them the legislative branch has very little power over them so bureaucracies all right they are off the hook all right they can they can pretty much do anything uh, without any limitation. Yes. We will use power against you. You want to elect Donald Trump? You want to have a choice? No, we will use power against you. You want to speak up at a school board meeting? We will use power against you. You want to protest at a, at a uh, peacefully at, a, at an abortion clinic? No, we will use power against you. It's the same message. They're just ramping it up. And Jesse, this is burning down the rule of law. And I tell you, they will regret doing this because I think the American people won't stand for it. And we've got, we've got to make sure that they do not succeed in what they're trying to do here well you as a senator have to take a okay let's uh go back here get a little bit more from tucker carlson counts of quote falsifying business records those would be misdemeanors that have been transmogrified into felonies somehow Apparently, this is related, and again, we don't have the text of the indictment, but it is apparently related to Donald Trump's alleged payment to Stormy Daniels seven years ago. Trump says he did not use campaign funds for that payment. We can be pretty sure he didn't, because if he had, he'd be charged for misusing donor money, and the Federal Election Commission would have pounced on him years ago. So we can be certain, pretty much, that Trump used personal funds. At the time, federal regulators who were in charge of looking into this did look into it and determined it was not a crime. 
But now the Manhattan DA, who was like so many DAs who've inspired the crime wave we're now suffering through, was backed by George Soros, has decided to prosecute the Republican frontrunner for this. So it raises the question, who exactly is this Manhattan DA? His name is Alvin Bragg. He's a rich kid, product of private schools and Harvard. But what should we know about him as we enter what is certain to be a history-changing spectacle in the next several weeks? Fox's Kevin Cork has been looking into the story. He joins us tonight. Hey, Kevin. Evening, Tucker. Alvin Bragg has been ridiculed by critics for even pursuing these charges because others, including the Southern District and others, have had a chance to bite that apple, have bypassed on it, and because of the weakness, presumably, of any particular case. But for the man you see here leaving work tonight with massive security presence, well, he's also the same man who campaigned on what some called a Get Trump platform. This indictment for him, they argue, to critics, is a win no matter what because it's not about the win, and that's the point. By the way, Bragg has been on the job since 2022. He won election back in November of 2021, taking over for the retiring Cy Vance. And his career uh, includes time as a federal prosecutor. He was also an assistant AG for the state of New York and a civil rights attorney. And remember this, he does have a tie to George Soros, at least indirectly, because Soros donated to a very liberal group that endorses progressive prosecutors. And that group, you'll recall, used a significant portion of their money to support Bragg in his 2021 campaign. Now, Bragg has done something no DA has ever done. And the fear tonight, Tucker, as many others will now follow suit, presuming that turnabout... Presuming that uh, turnabout is fair play. So last year, Hillary Clinton quietly settled a campaign finance violation over reporting the Steele dossier funding as legal services. So Hillary Clinton paid a fine. She was never arrested. So the Democratic National Committee and the Clinton campaign agreed to a Steele dossier funding fine. Is fair play, which means it's not just a Trump problem, probably. This could be a problem for a number of American politicians moving forward, including presidents. Tucker? Kevin Cork, thank you so much. You bet. So we've been asking tonight, how will Democrats respond to this? Um, and we're getting an early answer now. This is, we're going to read this, just as from a text. This is from moveon.org, which is one of the biggest Democratic political organizing groups in the country. And they've sent a mass text to their members. And we're quoting from it here. Trump is the first former president in history to be indicted. It's an important step to try to preserve American democracy, his indictment. In the echo of Trump's appeals just before the January 6th insurrection, Trump has called for his supporters to protest and take back our nation, employing white supremacist and anti-Semitic tropes, provoking waves of far-right violence. To mark Trump's indictment and ensure he is held to account, MoveOn has printed a huge batch of these convict Trump stickers and is giving them away for free while supplies last. So if you thought that organized Democrats in this country would pause for a moment before destroying what remains of our 250-year-old system, apparently you thought wrong. So what does happen next? Every action provokes a reaction. Radical actions tend to provoke radical reactions. So will Republicans in the states, will district attorneys who are Republicans in the states, retaliate? What will they do exactly? Something, for sure. 
Francie Higgs is a former state and federal prosecutor. She joins us to assess what exactly is going on tonight. Francie, thanks so much. So uh, George Soros published an op-ed, right, in the Wall Street Journal, July 31st, 2022. Why I support reform prosecutors, justice or safety, right? So he, you know, doesn't want to prosecute black people in particular, right? And he supports uh, district attorneys who don't want to prosecute black people, who don't want to prosecute uh, predators, don't want to prosecute people who... Shoot innocent people, all right? So people like Alva Bragg, George Soros, and the DAs that George Soros supports, all right, they don't want to prosecute violent criminals. So George Soros publicly discusses how he funds DAs with a specific agenda to not prosecute black people and other people of color who carry out massive acts of violence. So how would you want people to refer to this, all right? George Soros, very public about he funds prosecutors who do not prosecute black people for violent crimes. So how do you want people to talk about that? Much for coming on. Um, where do you think this goes from here? Well, I don't think it goes anywhere good, Tucker. You're exactly right. The concern is that you're going to have retaliatory action in the states, in the DA's offices, like I used to work, where people are going to think, well, turnabout is fair play. If you're going to go after President Trump, we're going to go after President Biden. Or if, as the Department of Justice has always thought, you can't go after a sitting president until and unless he's out of office, what stops them from going after the rest of President Biden's family for what looks like political corruption? You know, Tucker, I'm really struck by a, a movie quote, because I tend to be a sci-fi geek. I'm really struck by the quote when Obi-Wan Kenobi said to Darth Vader, if you kill me, I'm going to become more powerful than you could ever imagine. And I just yeah. wonder whether Trump and this movement behind the support for him because of what looks like a completely political prosecution will mean he will become more powerful than they can imagine. Right. I mean, there's there's a whole religion based on that idea, actually, as you know. Um, so, sure, um, that's a, that's a well-known phenomenon that the consequences you expect are not always the ones that you produce. In fact, they're often the very opposite. You wonder, though, I mean, just for just to name one example. So the governor of Florida is also running for president. He could play a role in this. Trump is a resident of Florida. DeSantis has already said he's not going to participate in this. Trump's lawyer earlier in the show said she thinks he's going to fly to New York and surrender. But what if he decides not to? This is next week. We don't know what's going to happen in the next five days. Maybe Trump decides, I'm not going to Florida. We're going to try to speak to him tomorrow and ask him directly. But who knows what's going to happen? And then DeSantis says, well, I'm not going to send marshals to pick him up. And then you have, you have a national crisis. Like, that could happen, could it not? Well, it could, because states have to cooperate with each other. When you've got someone indicted right. in the state system, rather than the federal system, states rely upon the governor of another state, the judges of another state, agreeing with that sort of extradition. It's one of the reasons why we expect federal officials, including former federal officials, to be prosecuted and investigated by federal officials so that they don't right. face this problem. But it could be a real crisis. That is such a smart point, which is a non-lawyer. I didn't know, but it makes. It would be amazing if Trump refused to surrender, hold up in Florida. Uh, Ron DeSantis won't allow his extradition to New York. That would, that would be amazing. And it would also be amazing if the judge in Donald Trump's case tries to gag him. 
and Donald Trump refuses to go along. So the judge, you know, ends up jailing him for contempt of court. I mean, so many amazing places for this uh, story to go. Sense. Thank you so much. Francie Higgs. Thanks, Tucker. So because we're in the middle of a very fast-moving story and we don't have all the details, we're going to just pause right now for a recap on where exactly we are in this. We're joined by Fox's Laura Engel, who's at the courthouse in Manhattan tonight, and she's going to get us up to speed. Laura, thanks for coming on. Well, thanks for having me. And, you know, we've had a very busy night down here, uh, a full city block full of reporters and cameras and tents and creating that circus-like atmosphere. Uh, there was a protest that rolled through here behind me in front of the courthouse a short while ago, but it was a protest about the mayor of New York City, Eric Adams, and his policies on the homeless, but it was loud. We thought it might have something to do uh, with this indictment of Trump today, but it was not. They moved along. Uh, but this courthouse has been uh, surrounded by barricades, and we've got over 40 New York State police officers uh, for the court system here uh, protecting this. Um, and as we move through, uh, we want to reset at 5.30 today. Just before 5.30, we learned that the Manhattan Grand Jury voted to indict former President. Okay, uh, Robert Barnes has tweeted four key problems. Robert Barnes is an attorney. Four key problems to the Trump indictment. One, Trump committed no crime. Two, statute of limitations expired. Three, due process violated by vague laws of politically motivated selective prosecution. Four, Trump is actually innocent. State's witness is a self-confessed liar and fraudster so let's maybe fast forward through some of this and uh, go on to tucker carlson he's a criminal defense attorney who is based in new york and very familiar with the jury pool there he joins us now lou thanks a lot for coming on how do you expect this trial assuming i guess there's going to be one to play out with the jury pool in new york hey tucker thanks for having me first i'd like to say like your former colleague uh, jason whitlock my heart goes out to America today. My heart is broken. I had some tears yeah. in my eyes earlier. Jason is such a great guest. Every time I listen to him, he's, he's incredible. And like him, my heart is broken. And any lawyer that graduated law school should be completely outraged by what's going on. At completely outraged. You know, as far as the jury pool goes, I hope that my fellow New Yorkers are going to be there to listen to what's going on. But, you know, I've tried probably over 50 cases. My partner has probably tried over 200 cases here in New York City. I'm not sure I have complete faith in, in, in the jury pool here. We, we live in a blue state and a blue, blue, blue city with a blue, blue, blue prosecutor. Blessings. Oh, well, you know, uh, I, I, I got interested with this uh, hard work piece you read earlier. Okay, great. So let, let me explore let, that let, a bit. Yeah, let me let me catch everyone up to, to speed with this. Okay, so here's the headline, how hard work destroys character. Right, I, I don't agree with that. But uh, here's the essay, the case against making talented young people do menial labor. The author says, I pulled myself up by my bootstraps half a dozen times over and I resented every minute of it. Hard work does not in and of itself improve character for a talented, spirited young man, especially doing menial labor for pitiful wages under idiot supervisors not only fails to build a character, it can destroy it. So I guess I would disagree with this more than I would 
uh, agree with it. You should pay your own way in life once you're an adult. And so if that means you need to work hard for low wages, uh, that, that's better than taking charity. Uh, but uh, do you have any immediate reactions to what I just read? Yeah. Uh, hard work is important for kids, young people, for a limited period of time if they have talent. You know, if they're if they're if they're intelligent, they don't need an entire life of menial labor, right? We like you said, menial labor isn't intrinsically doesn't automatically make you a virtuous person, but it, it, it does teach you the value of work and the value of people that do hard work. And for instance, like Sam Bankman Freed, I don't think ever did any hard work in his life. And this led him to have a very casual attitude towards money and other people's money. And um, I believe had he been forced to do some hard work early in his life, he wouldn't have made the mistakes he made. What do you think? Uh, maybe. I, I mean, I don't see anything virtuous in, you know, under underpaid work, you know, menial work if you're capable of more and better then you should you know move on to something better i don't you know i i don't think it's great for, for people to demean themselves yeah certainly better to work than to take welfare or to take charity but it's better to you know engage yourself in in you know a, a more lucrative and and more rewarding job there are a lot of great bosses out there there are a lot of great opportunities out there and so i I, I just see so many people in particular because I'm part of 12-step programs that, that address this, people who get stuck in under-earning jobs and, and just don't break out of them and are afraid to break out of them, are afraid to reach for prosperity, uh, are afraid to step into a position that you know requires more responsibility. So I, I think under-earning yes. is, a, is a deadly, deadly uh, compulsion. Yeah, so that's the flip side of manual labor. It, I think it, I think it uh, puts a ceiling on people's self-esteem and their aspiration. So if they get habituated to only menial labor, they stop dreaming. They stop thinking that they're worth more or can do more or are you know are worth having a place of prominence in society. So it's like. It's a balance, you know. Um, I just don't think there would be this woke stuff. So we have a situation where the jobs people, I mean, the right kind of labor is, I think, very ennobling. It builds your body and it does build character. But the wrong kind of labor is just mind-numbing and dispiriting. So... I know with with my jobs, I tended to replicate patterns that I developed in my childhood of feeling like being abused was normal and natural to me. Like I felt like I was at home when I was being abused by a, a boss. And I think a lot of people kind of replicate their, their home life pattern when they go out into work. And if they come from, you know, dysfunctional upbringing, often they, they replicate that in, in the workplace. And so if you are Know, putting yourself into a position where you're being demeaned and degraded and you know abused, I, I don't think that's uh, that's good for you. 
Uh, no, I agree. I agree. I think it's, I don't know. It, it cuts both ways, but, um, I don't know. It, it's like if you've, if you've met people that were, have worked hard, have, you know, have labored and those that haven't, there's a very certain subtle knowing that those who have know and that those who haven't don't know. You know, there's a very, um, there's a, uh, it's, it's like a guild membership or something. It's a, uh, it's a basis for bonding that I think a lot of people who work fast food jobs, for instance, don't have because the work is so degrading. Um, but if you've sort of really like worked and stressed your body and done something difficult and had to work as a team, like on a construction site or something, um, it's very bonding. It can be bonding. Yeah, it's like participating it can be in, in sports. Like if you join a high school sports team, you will likely learn community connection and working together as a team. So both uh, playing sports and you know working working with with a team in a job. The, the other thing that just comes to mind is that because of America's incredibly permissive immigration policies, uh, manual labor is paid you know, very low wages, like construction salaries have not increased in about 70 years in Southern California. If we had different immigration policies, uh, manual labor would be paid, you know, two, three times as much as it is now. So the, yeah. the reason that, I, that it's so under earning is because of our crazy immigration policies. Yeah. I, I remember like one of my first jobs at a high school, I worked on, on boats as you know, uh, I won't use the phrase exactly, but I was a boat N word. That's what yeah. they would call it. And I would have to do the menial work on a boat, which was very hard work, you know, involved like getting into cramped positions and really straining your body for extended periods of time. <laughs> so, um, and, and it resulted in permanent and- damage. I mean, I can hear it in your voice. Yeah, but I did inhale a lot of toxic chemicals. But also, but you would work with other people that were like, you know, experienced carpenters um, who had to work with like exotic, expensive hardwoods. And these people were very sought after. Their their skills were um, not easily found. You know, they were the uh, coders of their day. You know, they... They commanded a high wage and they had to be exceedingly precise in their work. And there was a certain um, elegance and and um, dignity to them. And that strata of work, I think, has been uh, eliminated or, as you say, given to immigrants who work cheaper. Um, and it's a real shame because those people, you know, that, that strata of people that work with their hands aren't respected as much as they should be, in my opinion. Right. I remember when I I came back, I went to Australia for a year after high school and I eventually got a job where I had the cleaning and gardening contract at the Boyne Island shopping center. And I was making in 1984, 85, I was making about $20 an hour. And I was working about uh, 55 hours a week. So I was making good money. I came back to America 
and the construction jobs that that I ended up taking were four dollars an hour. I mean, I was making five times as mm. much in Australia, and I had, you know, nobody looked down on me as far as I was aware in the in the community, even though I was cleaning toilets and I was scraping gum off the the you know shopping center sidewalks. You know, I did everything I could to keep the the Boyne Island shopping center in pick and span shape, but there was nothing demeaning about it. I was making really good money. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, hmm. I was making, I think it was $6 an hour. And then one day I got a raise to $7 an hour, <laughs> which yeah. I thought was like lavish. I thought that was like, you know, one percenter territory. So, well, when anyway. I came back to California, most of the people I was working with in landscaping were Mexican, were I- illegal immigrants. You know, only about 10% of the people I work with were, you know, white and 90% were were immigrants. And so they, of course, you know, drove down the wages. And yeah, it, it's, it's hard to feel good about an exhausting, demanding, menial job that just essentially pays minimum wage and that's entirely yeah. the product of our crazy immigration policies but, but uh, I'll, I'll read a little bit more here from this essay in american greatness okay uh man does not exist to labor for the sake of laboring fine work must serve a purpose well the purpose should be paying your bills and being an adult must be fit to the nature of one doing it no, there I, I think that's absurd right reality is all right we have to fit ourselves to reality, right? Reality does not have to fit ourselves, fit itself to us. And so this notion that work, you know, must adjust itself to our individual special nature, I, I think is absurd. It is up to us to adapt ourselves to reality into the marketplace to, you know, develop skills that uh, pay a, a good solid wage. Uh, but uh, you have any thoughts here? Let me read you the sentence again. You know, work must be fit to the nature of the one doing it. I, I would put it the other way. We should fit ourselves to work and, and finding work at which we excel. Uh, I agree with you 100% in that. The tone of that guy's article is so so arrogant and so detached from reality that he really does deserve a year-long stint of media level. Well, you know, okay, uh, let me be a little bit charitable towards him. I mean, I can really remember those times feeling that way. Like, God, this is so dumb. I, you know, I deserve better than this. Yeah. You know? And, but at the same time, like you said, I needed to, I needed to, to accord myself with, with reality, you know? If I was worth so much more, why wasn't I doing so much more? It may, you know, it forces those questions on you and it makes you get serious about your life and your career, I think. And so um, I've ever since then, I've always had the sort of the drive to see something out because I know how bad it can get if you don't, you know, like with, you know, if you're in an office job, you're really any sort of standard issue office job, you're really overcompensated, in my opinion, in 20, 21st century America, as as soul crushing as office work can be. And it it is soul crushing. So, 
Well, I mean, there are great people. There are great bosses out there. I've had a lot of great bosses. I enjoyed coming to work. I, I, you know, I felt, you know, I was well treated by them. I liked them. I sometimes considered a privilege just, you know, hanging out with them and working, you know, side by side with them. I mean, I worked for for multi multi millionaires. You know, people worth tens of millions of dollars who would, you know, get down in their shorts and get down into the dirt, you know, right beside me. And, and you know work hard menial labor even though these people are worth you know tens of millions of dollars i mean that's really good for your for your morale all right and this is somebody that's obviously built his whatever he had he built up from the mm -hmm. beginnings you know he didn't mm -hmm. he didn't like borrow a bunch of money and buy an existing business he created a business himself and uh you know built it up from 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 the ground zero and people have done that. They do. Exude is very a certain class, a certain strength of character that's uh, admirable. And uh, I mean, I've worked next door. I've worked next door to people who are earning over a million dollars a year. I mean, you know how smart. I mean, in an ethical, legal way, you know how smart some of these people had to be to earn over a million dollars a year. And I got to, you know, work next to them. I got to talk to them. I got to joke with them. I got to hang out with them. I got to socialize with them. I mean, you can meet incredible people in the workplace, and it can be an absolutely intoxicating experience. Yes, it can. Yes. Working, I mean, and I think part of, back to your immigration point, what the immigration has done is it, it's sort of, it's stripped out that layer of camaraderie that you can have at work when you're working with people that speak English and then yeah. know your reference points and yeah. you can feel comfortable with. So work, even if the work is menial, the social climate can be, uh, you know, uplifting and, and invigorating and just throwing people who can perform a task in there and have no commonality with you whatsoever is a form of torture, I think. And also working, if, if you're doing it in, in a legal above board manner, it it does it, it is you know 40 hours a week where you're not doing something bad all right if yeah. even menial labor right even if it's menial labor at least you're not you know perhaps ingraining you know bad habits playing video games or watching pornography or you know there are all sorts of bad things that that men in particular can do and so if you even a menial job it will tire you out so not only will you be occupied for 40 hours a week, you know, idle hands won't be doing the devil's work, but afterwards mm -hmm. you'll be so tired that you'll be much less likely to go, you know, raping and pillaging. Yes. And you'll just be too tired to spend the money that you've earned and you'll just crash. Yeah. yeah. You learn the value yeah. of money. That's the other thing. Even with a, me a menial job, like I don't like to spend much money because I love the freedom to just take off for three months to Australia. Like, I like the maximum of freedom with my time. So, therefore, I'm pretty damn careful with how I spend my money. And if you've had the experience of a menial job, the normal person will be somewhat sensitized to, you know, how difficult it is to, to you know, make money. And you would think that it would have a salutary effect on the way they then conduct themselves with regard to money. So, Luke, just parenthetically, um, when you went to Australia, did you, like, rent out your place, Airbnb, or did you leave it unoccupied? No, I didn't. No, I didn't. I, I didn't uh, rent it out. So, yeah. um, you, you wouldn't be comfortable doing that? I, 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 uh, 
<laughs> I could possibly, but uh, I just chose so a stranger. Not to. I just it's one thing to do it someone you know, but someone that you don't. Yeah. Uh, uh, but you see those horror stories of people <laughs> moving in for thirty days and then yeah. claiming residency, craving tenancy. So anyway, I don't know. The whole work question is interesting. I do think that. You know, it's sort of one of the toxins that's kind of swirling about in our culture. And I think the if you have too many idle hands, they start thinking that they're born in the wrong gender and that you need to accommodate these fantasies. You know, like if we had if I farm, rented my place out, they started like masturbating and committing sodomy like in my, you know, holy area. It would it would not feel good, man. Yeah, it's no longer a sacred space, bro. They they I know what you mean, bro. my sacred space. Like, how would you like some dude who was like striking himself off in your living room? You know, you can get, you can it's like, difficult to contemplate, man. I mean, you can like shoot that stuff. Well, not like, everyone shares your hobbies, Luke. <laughs> <laughs> like, you can like, you can have an explosion of, yeah. of, and, and, you know, they may not, you know, clean it all up. And then you walk back in, and you have to use one of those yeah, uh, that, such, that black light luminol. You got to bring in the luminol, bro. The black light. <laughs> Get to work. Uh, I don't know, look here. So anyway, speaking of manual labor, I had to do like two hours of manual labor today. I had to ship a bunch of boxes, and boy, I'm tuckered out. I am tuckered out, Luke. It feels great, man. It feels great to do a real honest day's work. That's the one thing manual labor does. It gives you Deep sleep, bro. And it, how, how are you going to reward yourself? You got to have a few beers, or what are you going to do? I, I've I've already had two beers. I'm here at the beach, rewarding myself, drinking a couple of beers, and listening to the show, bro. Oh, that's beautiful. Well, you deserve it, man. You're a patriotic American. Thank you. So, uh, all right, let's change one more topic, and then I gotta go. So, okay. Do you think this puts Trump in the White House? I I. I I have to think it's it's good for him winning the Republican nomination. I I don't know if it does anything towards him uh, beyond that. Like, how how does this go over with independent voters? Well, let's put it this way: up until today, you know, I was pretty antagonistic towards Trump. I was sort of uh, team DeSantis in the mm -hmm. most subtle, low-key kind of way, but now. I'm a little irritated, just sort of on principle, that they could use such tactics. So I would just love to see Trump win just just on that principle alone. Uh, yeah, I, I but, felt the same thing. I was kind of like over Trump, tired of Trump, sick of Trump. But now I'm suddenly feeling, you know, internally on Team Trump. Yeah. So I don't know. This would be the funniest. This would be the, you know the funniest uh, back at you. The, the funniest self own that ever was if this actually turned out to be the catapult he needed <laughs> but then again i also worry you know in the back of my mind that why are they so committed to not having him be president you know what's driving this animus towards trump you know why the deep state if you believe that term is so inimical towards trump why what is does trump truly block their designs and are their designs noble and worth doing? Are these the same people that are pushing us into, uh, you know, Russia, Ukraine? Um, is Trump 
an impediment to that. And I, there must be a reason because Trump really didn't do that much. You know, he wasn't a bad president. Well, I mean, he could have been more effective from our point of view. But yeah. I mean, if you look at the sort of traditional metrics by which you measure a presidency, Trump really wasn't that bad. No wars, no foreign wars, decent economy, a COVID, whatever, you know, you may like how he did handle COVID, but it was a significant challenge. And I don't know, he did what Fauci wanted. And, you know, so uh, I don't know why, why the animus towards Trump? It just doesn't make sense to me. Well, I mean, it makes sense to me. He, he, he is a, a button pusher. I mean, he, he is. Yeah, no, but, of... no, apart from the personality, like the personality quirks we're well aware of, but people don't care about that. Ultimately, people with power don't care about that. They care about their interests, right? Well, he, I mean, he, do you, he... Do you, are you going to, are you going to like overturn years of precedent and history around not politicizing the justice department just because he does a few mean tweets? I think it's policy terms. People are motivated by 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 deeper, more important issues. No. Well, I think it's a lot more than mean tweets. I mean, the guy is a vulgarian, and he is just kind of, you know, the embodiment of a, you know, low class lout from from an elite perspective. So, I understand why I understand why people loathe him. You know, on the right, on the left, in the center. I mean, I don't think it's that hard to understand. It's not necessarily about yeah, policies. Right, right. It's, it's, it's one thing to loathe him, yeah. right? It's one thing to loathe him, but it's for your whole personality around hating him, which a lot of people on the left seem to do. And their whole reason for being seems to be to hate Trump or to signal against Trump. And Trump, I, I have Trump. to feel that, that it's the foreign policy objectives that Trump was impeding. Otherwise, they're, people will just shrug their shoulders and say, yeah, I don't like Trump, big deal. But it's be, they're being led and encouraged uh, by the media to despise him, right? And, you know, I can certainly understand not liking him, but I just don't understand the motive for hating his guts the way a lot of people uh, really it, seem to. Well, whenever you start hating anyone, you tend to lose perspective. You lose common sense. You you know, you act deranged. And so Trump derangement syndrome is, is a real thing. Once you, once you just give in to just you know, visceral hatred, it, the, the adrenaline rush becomes addictive, you know, whatever right, side right. of the political so con- spectrum. So contrast this with, you saw that tweet going around where Biden's handlers has to sort of coach him through walking down a little sidewalk and meeting these construction workers. You saw that tweet, did you not? I don't think I did. Oh, really? Well, look in the Twitter chat there. Um, I think Bernard sent it. Um, I mean, if you watch that, you can't have confidence that Joe Biden is truly in charge of this country. You just can't. Um, Okay, I'll, uh, I'll scroll. I'll scroll. I'll try to. Well, so when like, when did when did oh there there I I got it I I believe I got it okay all so right, play, play that 
play that and let me get your reaction. I think I think it's important content. Okay, here we go. This is important. Let's uh, uh, some union leaders. Down here. Yes, sir. Here down the ramp. Joe Biden. And we have people lined up on the left okay. over here. We have people lined uh, up on the left. Some union leaders here. and workers. Hey guys, hey guys. Play the audio. I am. I am. You can't hear it, but I'm playing. Your mark is going to be the blue one to the left. How y'all doing? Yeah, mark has got to be the blue You've got one a blue mark, and that's okay. I got, I'll stand my blue mark, and then I'm going to say load each one of you. Yes, sir. I'm going to, I'll, I'll help you get started. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I don't think people are going to hate Joe Biden for that. It just shows him, you know, as a frail old man. Yes, but I guess I'm old school. I remember that. I thought presidents were supposed to sort of project this sort of calm, confident, in control, superhuman like uh, visage, you know? Now to see him led around like a little retard. It was just, just, that's just, to me, that's like 10 times worse than Trump, you know? 10 times. Anyway. Okay. Bl- blessings, bro. All right. That's all I got. All right, Thanks, bro. I'll bro. talk to you later. All right, bye. Okay, bye, bye. Let's uh, let's get a uh, little bit more here from Tucker. Find ourselves on that path to one state party, one party state, in authoritarian government. Yeah, probably not the best time to give up your AR-15, and I think most people know that. Um, Ned Ryan, thank That's you right. so much for joining Thanks, us. Thanks, Tucker. Appreciate it. Hard to believe what's happening in America. We thought we'd check in with the man on the leading edge of America in the city of Los Angeles, which is always ahead of national trends, a lifelong resident of that city, Adam Carolla. We always see when we're in town host the Adam Carolla Show to put this into perspective. Adam, thanks so much for coming on. So what's your view of what we're watching? Well, it's fine. <clears throat> I, <clears throat> sorry, I don't have any new thoughts because your 200 guests before me, I think, encapsulated <laughs> every thought you could possibly have about this. But uh, like Whitlock said... I think there's a religious angle to this. I think they, on the left, that is a religion, and I think they look at Trump as Satan. Yes. And if you got to get rid of Satan and or Hitler, then you just do what you got to do. God is on your side. So there's a kind you of re- feel that, right? I mean, I don't, I don't, I feel that too. I don't think I'm imagining well, it. Well, it is like this isn't politics. Trump right? derangement syndrome feels like the kind of anger you would have against a religion and a religious leader who didn't agree with your religion, and then you need to take them down, you know, incarcerate yes. them, whatever it is. And so all the rule book is out the window when you're dealing with Satan or Hitler or Beelzebub or whoever. So I, I think there's that element to it. The other one is kind of interesting, which is we make proclamations. Like Merrick Garland says, uh, white supremacy is the biggest problem this country faces and the most danger this country faces. About and everyone that. laughs at him. Yeah. And then he goes out and finds it. So then he goes and arrests parents at Virginia school board meetings, right? right? So it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. So they're going to turn Trump into a martyr. People are going to go out and protest. Somebody's going to do something stupid, and then they're going to fire up the DOJ, just like January 6th, but outside now, and, and snap into action. So they make proclamations, and then they need to find the crime, and then we'll find this. So certainly... People are going to push back. Someone's going to do something stupid or not. CNN, MSNBC, the answers from The View, they're all going to blow it up into this. 
and then the stormtroopers come So in. it does feel like the population is being pushed into a corner for a reason. I'm not just imagining that. I feel like it's to get them to react so that the government can now swoop in and do a self-fulfilling prophecy. Because everybody reacts to this is going to be a white supremacist. And remember, we told you that white supremacy is the biggest problem this country faces. How long can they scream at whites before that just becomes ineffective? <laughs> it, 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 it's like I, I've said a million times, there's never been a better time to be called a racist. You could just be lumped in with everyone else right. in this country, anyone who voted Republican. And to your other point, I think the only way this stops is if LeBron James and the Obamas and the View ladies and Joe Scarborough, if people start speaking up, not people on the right, right. No, people that's right. on the left. Right. Like you need some sane cultural leader who's an athlete or Oprah or someone of that nature to start going, look, I don't like Trump. But I love the country. This isn't right. We need to do something. Because aren't you supposed to settle it in your elections? Isn't that how a democracy works? You don't like Trump? Okay, fine. Then you get to vote against him, right? I thought but, that but, was but, the system. What if Joe Biden was running, running against the devil? Then well, how would you want to settle it? No, you're it? exactly right. Well, then you need to get the angels of the Lord in there. Alvin right. Bragg. Uh, okay, you're probably wondering, what does... Uh... What is Glenn Black? Glenn Beck. Donald Trump is not even a person anymore. He is a symbol. He is a symbol of the average everyday guy that keeps getting screwed every single time. Watches other people screw up big banks, screw up their companies, and get away with it. He's, they see people all the time doing stuff that they know if they did, they'd be in prison for 20 years. But because they're not part of the elite, they get away with it. Donald Trump has taken arrow after arrow, and that's why this is the way the average American feels tonight. Yeah. I hope that there's a few Republic or Democrats out there. But this guy has been taking the bullets for the average person now for years. And people on the right feel like he's the only guy that really gets what the f people are feeling. And it's, uh, it's not gonna, it's not gonna end well, uh, for the Democrats in the next election. It's just not. I don't know if Donald Trump is the winner or not, but I will tell you this. You're not going to stop a hundred million people. This country is in shambles. And there's going to be a hundred million people that will walk on broken glass and through fire to vote for someone other than this corrupt banana republic administration. It's, I think. Okay, Michael Tracy usually has good perspectives. He tweets. The treason and insurrection charges wouldn't stick, so might as well settle for some absurdist reinterpretation of a campaign finance charge from seven years ago. Absolutely brilliant. All right, let's get something from John Stossel. Diversity, equity, and inclusion are everyone's responsibility. DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion. That sounds nice and responsible. No wonder all big companies now require employees to get training in it. Because we understand that racial and systemic bias have many causes, sources, and ways of showing up within each of us. Even if that's true, 
Do you know what American companies now do to address it? Some make ritual apologies for America's past. We want to acknowledge that the land where the Microsoft campus is situated was traditionally occupied by the Sammamish. By proclaiming guilt, companies try to signal that now they're virtuous. The Snohomish, the Tulalip. It's nice to apologize. Yes, but what is it really doing? Eric Smith was a diversity officer at Drew University. Now he teaches at York College. Why'd you stop being a diversity officer? I just thought it was a useless thing. There's a better way to go about doing this. Diversity and inclusion. Useless or not, companies continue to pay big money for trainings. There's a whole industry now designed to cater to companies looking for a quick way to check that box. In the U.S. in 2020, DEI was a $3.4 billion industry. Every big company. They feel like they have to. They have to say something. They have to signal to the world that they're doing something. Is it effective? No. Uh, in fact, it seems to be doing worse. It seems to be making people uh, less likely to interact with people who are unlike them, you know, because it's like a minefield now. Less likely to interact. After a training where you hear things about microaggressions, if you ask somebody what they do for a living, somehow that's racist, right? If you learn that, then why would you take a chance? I better not talk to Eric because I might say something wrong. Precisely. So now inclusion means I'm going to silence myself and not talk to the black people. All white people are racist. Some trainings are just divisive and dumb. I believe that white people are born into not being human. This is extreme, I take it. It is extreme, but it's becoming more of the norm. These slides were shown at a Coca-Cola diversity training. The thesis of this training was try to be less white. They're talking about arrogance and things like that. That is by no means a white thing. The point is to demonize the other side as much as possible. And absurdly, diversity trainings don't even do what they're supposed to do. This Harvard professor analyzed studies of them. Sadly enough, I did not find one single study which have, has found that diversity training, in fact, leads to more diversity. In fact, the Harvard Business Review reports five years after diversity training, the share of black women managers actually decreased. It's not about data. It's about a power grab. A power grab that starts in schools. Melt the steel bars of racism and white language supremacy. This expert tells teachers it's racist to teach traditional English. If you use a single standard to grade your students' languaging, you engage in racism. You actively promote white language supremacy, which is the handmaiden to white bias in the world. Smith was in the audience. I heard that, um, thought it was a bit misguided. So Smith wrote a long and thoughtful response saying it's a disservice to minority kids not to teach standard English. For that, he was attacked. We are professors in communication. I thought we could communicate. I was so wrong. Instead of a discussion, people called you racist. Do you enjoy using Western modes of argument to invalidate people of color? Check your privilege. What they saw in me was a bigger threat than anything they've seen before. A black person saying it's okay to teach black students uh, standardized English. An academic named Eve complained about the harm Smith consistently perpetuates. Other academics joined in to coddle Eve. Eve spent tremendous labor, physically, intellectually, and emotionally, to write his response. 
and most probably took him extra time to recover from that labor. It's like they're victims everywhere. Yes, that's the point. You have to perpetuate the victimhood. That's part of the narrative. It just isn't even logical discussion. Has academia gone insane? Yes. <laughs> that's the short answer. Yes, it has gone insane. I was surprised that the leader of that academic conference agreed to talk to me. You engage in racism. He's since grown a beard. If you use a single standard to grade your students' languaging, you engage in racism. Standardized English tends to exclude um, uh, many groups of people. My parents came here from Germany. They made me learn standardized English. Were, were they being oppressive? I mean, where would I be if they hadn't? There are absolutely benefits to a standardized English, but that same world creates those same benefits through certain kinds of biases, and they can be bad for many um, folks who simply are not going to be able to meet that standard. I'm simply saying that I don't think everyone needs to be held to it. If they're not held to it, how can they succeed? Yeah, I think that they do. I think that they can. He was much more measured than he'd been lecturing his fellow professors. I think you're toning it down for my audience here, because you and your conference speech were all about this is an oppressive country and white racism, white dominance. I tried to be rhetorical and I tried to use the moment to make a statement. In other words, he played to the crowd. Your students who do not embody enough of the white um, habits of language that make up your standards stand at your classroom doors and die for your comfort. That anger is the norm with DEI advocates. At Stanford Law School, a judge who'd been invited to speak was stopped by angry students and Stanford's Dean of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. Absolute disenfranchisement of their rights and does land. The diversity dean lectured this federal judge for six minutes. Is it worth the pain that this causes and the division that this causes? Do you have something so incredible, important to say about Twitter and guns and COVID that that is worth this impact on the division of these people? At least the law school president later apologized, saying this violates Stanford's commitment to free speech. Good. I'm glad some sensible people push back against nonsense like this. And when it comes to DEI, this education reformer, Chris Rufo, proposes an alternative. EMC, Equality, Merit, and Colorblindness. I like equality and merit and colorblindness. Merit is a good thing. But demanding it, we're told, hurts minorities. Our students of color struggle and fail even when we are, are there to help them. So some colleges drop admissions tests. High schools eliminate honors classes. What is that going to do to an entire group of people? Nothing good. I mean, if you wanted to hold down a group of people without them knowing it, this woke thing is a good strategy. The gap between black and white students is widening. Minority and underserved students falling further behind. What's the better way? Talking. People don't say what they feel because they don't want to get canceled. They don't want to be called racist. People are censoring, and we have to stop doing that. Okay, good stuff there from uh, John Stossel looking at uh, Alice from Queens. She says the, the New York case against Trump is an epic car crash in such slow motion that New York Democrats have convinced themselves it's just normal traffic on the expressway. Okay, that's going to do it for tonight. Take care. Bye-bye.